Welcome to Distressed Situations, a Reed Smith podcast. On this podcast, we cover current issues in financial restructuring over a wide variety of industries. Whether your company is a financial institution or in industry, we hope our commentary will be useful in managing the risks associated with distress. If you have any questions about our topics, feel free to contact our speakers. Well, welcome to the the latest edition of Distressed Situations, we are lucky to have our very first repeat panelist, Amber Seifert. Hey, Amber. Hi, Keith. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you again. So last time we were here, we were talking about receiverships in particular. And yes. today's topic is similar, but a bit broader in scope and, and maybe a little more specific. The topic we have is five things to consider when you have a defaulted loan. And I think we could easily also include in that a soon-to-be-defaulted loan, things to think about on the front end of a default. I think we'll probably limit most of our comments today to defaults involving commercial real estate loans. A lot of the topics uh, that we'll deal with will deal with other types of credit facilities nearing default. But for purposes of today lest we say different. Let's focus on commercial real estate. What do you say? I think that sounds fine. Okay. So I am representing a client and you're servicing a loan. And we think this might go into default. We've looked at the loan documents and lo and behold, we think there might be a default. Should we send the default notice right now? Or is there something else we need to think about before we do that? It's a good question, isn't it? I mean, first of all, I think obviously you want to talk to your lawyer, which would be you, and we would want to figure out, does the default notice kind of have another purpose? Like, does it help start the clock for the foreclosure? I do think sending a default notice is important and useful. It makes sure everyone's on notice. I would ask you, do you think there's a difference between a default notice that would be maybe on my servicer's letterhead versus a default notice that would come from you as the lawyer and be on your legal letterhead? So let me start. I'm going to answer your question directly, and then I'm going to back up. And I don't think it makes a difference from a legal perspective, but from a business perspective, it may signal a shift in the tenor of communications because it's one thing for a lender to send something. Mm-hmm. But at the point in time you've engaged outside counsel, it has risen to a different level. Now, the one thing before I send my letter, the one thing I always want to think about is, am I sending notice of the default or am I sending notice of an opportunity to cure? And the way I usually walk into that is I say, yeah, it's a default. The question is, Do the loan documents give the borrower an opportunity to cure that default without the lender being able to pursue remedies? Is that that's the way you think about it? Absolutely. I mean, you have to go through your loan documents. And, you know, as we at Trimont work with a variety of clients, we see a variety of different ways loan agreements can be worded. And so you absolutely want to see how your loan agreement describes it. If you need to send the notice of default in order to start accruing the default interest or starting the clock for your notice and also your foreclosure, but then you also want to understand from a legal standpoint based on the jurisdiction you're operating in, if that helps support maybe the next step, which could become a foreclosure action. 
And I agree with you. I think it gives gravitas, like just the legal letterhead gives gravitas and seriousness to the situation. I think people can get letters or borrowers can get letters from the servicers and they can say, oh yeah, we know this is accurate. But mm-hmm. you know, maybe when it comes from a law firm, it, it starts to be taken very seriously. Right. Well, and it's it shows a level of diligence on part of the of the lender that they've actually gone out, spoken to counsel, engaged counsel. Counsel looked at the loan documents and sent the letter. Mm-hmm. True. True. Right, would there so, be any reasons we would pause on the default notice? Like if, like I could maybe only think of like if you've kind of come to terms regarding an extension and you really think it's going to get documented in the next few days. Like, and it, you maybe you think your default's only going to be like two or three days or something really short term. But otherwise, I can't think of any reason you wouldn't send one. The only situation that I've ever ever encountered is where the borrower is already trying to do the right thing and sell its collateral. And they're in the middle of a sale process. Maybe earnest money is about to become non-refundable. And there's a thought that if there's the default notice that the buyer is going to exercise their right to exit the contract. That's the only circumstance I've ever seen that I thought there was even a possibility of delaying a, a notice of default that made you know good business sense. Have you been in an instance where you've needed to send more than one? So, yes. I think the key in sending multiple notices of default is to make it clear that you're not waiving rights and that you are not giving up on, well, you're not creating a pattern that the borrower could rely upon, right? So that you're not crying wolf and then crying wolf and then crying wolf. And you don't want the borrower to come back and say, well, this is the way we do it. They send a default notice. They don't do anything. Then they send a default notice. They don't do anything. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that somehow becomes a defense. And so one of the things that, that we like to do, and it's the next, it's number two on our list, is mm-hmm. uh, we do pre-negotiation letters or pre-negotiation agreements. Uh, Very important. You send these number. Very early. So, I mean, I would say it probably depends on when we start having conversations with the borrower that are starting to lead to, hey, I think we're going to need to do something outside of the exact parameters of our loan documents. And obviously, when they first tell you this, you know, it's fine just to listen and say, great, let me like think on it and get back to you with the next steps. But typically, next steps before we start discussing any kind of actual critical terms is going to be to get a P&A executed, a pre-negotiation agreement. What kind of specific language in the pre-negotiation agreement, Keith, do you feel is the most important? Like, do you feel it's important to acknowledge a default in a pre-negotiation agreement? It's critical. So if if I, on behalf of my client, or am, am going to have my client interface with the, with the defaulted borrower, I want confirmation that the borrower says I'm dealing with the right person and the person I'm dealing with is the owner and holder of the note that I'm in default and I'm waiving claims against the lender. Because if any of those things are going to be contested by the borrower, there's not going to be a deal because now you have a borrower that's just trying to reserve leverage rather than coming to the table, sincerely looking to reach an accommodation with the lender. And so if I can't get agreement on those three basic things, and there's some other things that go in a pre-negotiation letter, but fundamentally, those are the three primary ones. If I can't get agreement on those three things with the borrower, the likelihood that a deal is going to be reached at the end is pretty low. 
Agree. I would say also from a business standpoint, we are very interested in having a documented agreement that states there are no oral agreements, that all of the conversations up to us receiving formal approval from whatever various committees or entities on the lender standpoint, we may need approval for the final business terms and reducing those terms to legally drafted documents that are executed by all parties. After any payments that are needed also come in, that is what's very important because those conversations can go down various different paths. You obviously don't want a borrower to misinterpret those communications and think they have a deal before they actually do. Yeah. I wish I had said that first because that's exactly the right point. That That is one of the primary purposes of the PNA is it does set that bright line in the sand and it makes it clear that we're not going to get to uh, a point in time and the borrower is going to be able to say, well, Keith said it was okay that I pay late. And Keith said it was all right if I sold my collateral for less than the loan amount. And Keith said this and Keith said that. It takes mm-hmm. that out of play. A hundred percent. And it's really, I would say, in one part, like very protectionary for both parties, but obviously protectionary to the lender because you don't want to put yourself in any kind of a situation that could potentially get you sued later down the line. And I think the PNA is the first form of protection to cover the lender for any miscommunication. It sets things out. So what if I had a hypothetical situation where I had a borrower and let's just say they're a borrower of a hotel property and they are having a lot of heartburn around acknowledging a payment default in their pre-negotiation letter because they feel if they acknowledge it in writing, their franchisor could also call them in default under the franchise agreement. And I will say for a hypothetical situation, we can maybe assume this was in a period of time where franchisors were probably aware that a lot of hotels were not in a position to make their monthly payments. Yeah, that is a catch-22 for the borrower for sure. And, and I can appreciate where the borrower is with that. But I also, as the lender, really don't want to be in a situation where I have the counterparty to my PNA unwilling to admit that a default has occurred. So you've got a couple of choices, right? You could not put that in the agreement, but that doesn't change the fact that the borrower is in default, right? Mm-hmm. So whether they put it in writing or not, doesn't change that fact. It it would put the franchisor to a more difficult test of proving the default, right? But it's not changing mm-hmm. the ultimate fact that that there is a default. And I think I would encourage the borrower putting my lender hat on to just sign the letter because this is a fact. And your franchisor may not like it, you may not like it, but you've defaulted and we got to do something about it. The faster we get to that resolution, the faster you can say to your franchisor, yeah, I was in default, but I fixed it. Mm-hmm. True. As another alternative, would you be comfortable with a non-executed letter and then maybe advising your your business client, servicer, myself, to not have a conversation with the borrower without counsel on the phone? Like just make counsel a party to, and there could be a verbal disclaimer for every telephone call, and then there's multiple parties on the telephone that would be able to attest to the fact that no verbal agreements were were made. I mean, that's what you have to do if you don't have a pre-negotiation agreement is that the the ability to pick up the phone and call the borrower or the borrower's ability to pick up the phone and call somebody in the business line, that's what goes away when you don't sign a, a pre-negotiation agreement. 
makes it more difficult, more cumbersome. It puts the lawyers in between getting the deal done. You know, in my personal style is I don't want to get in the way of the deal. So I'd like to have the pre-negotiation letters done so the clients can really work out the fundamental business issues before we have to get to the point of documenting it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to change the subject on you. Okay. I've heard this term uh, dual tracking and I keep hearing dual tracking, dual tracking. What, what does that mean to you? You know, I think it's one of our favorite terms on distressed asset management discussions or in distressed asset management. It's probably like the second word they teach you when you walk in the door as an analyst, dual track. And effectively, it means if you have a defaulted loan, that whatever discussions you're having with the borrower may be great. They may resolve the issue, but it's always important to start your foreclosure process. And I would say because that can become a stopgap a timeline and sort of a hammer to completing some type of alternative resolution. So dual tracking is typically going down two paths at the same time, typically in distressed asset management on the debt side, it's foreclosure versus any other type of resolution. I like the way you say that because it does function in all of those different manners, the dual tracking piece, Mm -hmm. in that it creates a fulcrum to resolve the matter. Because without dual tracking, without the lender seeking to pursue remedies, there is no incentive for the borrower. Mm -hmm. But the caveat is, and I don't know that you should change strategy, is foreclosure timing drastically changes based on what part of the country you're operating in. Yeah, it's one thing to dual track in Texas where you have a 21-day notice to foreclosure for the first Tuesday of the month versus oh, yeah, a higher world judicial foreclosure, and it might take two years, right? Yeah. So the importance of dual tracking in Ohio is is probably maybe paramount. And in Texas, you might have 60 days to play with, right? Just given the speed for which you can get to foreclosure. It's a different kind of threat depending on where your property is located. So I would almost say a majority of the states on the East Coast have sort of what I would call more judicial, a slower path to foreclosure. And so I I think you go ahead and start it, but it could take a much longer time and it's probably less of a tight timeline hammer to get your deal negotiated in. And then you get to some of the Southern states and you know us, Texas specifically, 21 days if all your documents are in order. It's pretty tight timeline. They have a very short window to negotiate and get something done. And then you kind of get more over to the Western part of the U.S. And in my experience, the states I've operated in, it's predominantly about four months if you start your documentation right on time. Mm-hmm. But yes, dual track, very important word in distressed yeah, asset management. It's uh, There's a lot of corporate buzzwords that come to, there's corporate speak and, and in our world, dual track is that, right? Yep, exactly. One of the remedies that is, I don't know if I want to say it's in vogue, but I think it is becoming more and more popular is receivership, especially with enactment of the Uniform Receivership Act and the use of receivership in certain asset classes. What are the circumstances that cause you to think I should get a receiver rather than pursuing just a foreclosure? course. So, I mean, first of all, I think it depends on the asset and the borrower and how they are behaving and acting. I think it more so has to do with the income, knowing where it's going, knowing how it's going to be used. So, for example, if we have a borrower and they reach out, you know, before their maturity date and say, hey, we're not going to be able to pay this off or refinance on the maturity date. We're, you know, in a position to continue to make all our regular monthly payments. We 
you have a kind of a clear path to resolution, I don't know that we would think a receiver is necessary in that instance. If you have a borrower who's contacting you and saying, hey, I don't know if I'm going to be able to cover payroll for my hotel staff. And it's possible, you know, we may need to use some reserves just to cover payroll in the next month. That's going to make me very nervous as someone on the business side. And I'm 100% going to want to um, recommend to have a receiver put in place before we start using any kind of funds that the lender is holding to continue operations at the property. So I would say funds. I would also say if there's any kind of like known environmental issue, if there's maybe a large scale amount of ongoing renovation work, anything where there could potentially be reserves or funds being used at the property where if the borrower is underwater, that receiver being appointed by the court adds a different level of protection, an additional level of protection where without committing to anything, committing to a foreclosure or committing to any kind of agreement, the receiver just kind of gets put in the middle. Business at the property, use of reserves in a default scenario are able to continue to be used, but there's the additional, I would say, safety net of the receiver managing those funds and providing all of the reports to the court. I agree with all that. I'm going to throw one more at you. Mm -hmm. And here it is. We are coming out of a period of historically low interest rates. Mm -hmm. If I've got debt that still has remaining term, but a borrower that's in default, I think this is an absolutely unique time to try to orchestrate a receivership and then have that debt assumed and create value that way because you would be offering financing to the assumptor at rates that can't be achieved in the market right now. And I think there's an opportunity to create value for a lender, especially one that that believes there's a chance they might be less than fully secured under those circumstances. And that's a unique element of receivership that you can pursue receivership without accelerating the debt. You can pursue receivership without foreclosure. You can do an assumption through receivership. Now, it is way beyond the scope of a 30-minute podcast to walk through all of the nuts and bolts of that. But it is an option that it doesn't present itself in traditional remedies. And so I see receivership, especially in an increasing interest rate environment, as an opportunity to capture some value. Absolutely. It's a really good and useful tool to have in your toolbox as you're thinking through how you need to resolve debt. Okay, Amber, there's a default. You've got some reserves. What do you do? Good question, right? Do we think the borrower is going to file for bankruptcy? And like, if I think they're going to file for bankruptcy, what would the possibility be that they could try and argue they need to claw back some funds they put into reserve for their own use? How would I need to think through protecting those reserves? Well, the the way I think through it and the reason why the sweep is called sweeping of reserves, applying reserves to the indebtedness is so important is on filing Reserves function as cash collateral and the bankruptcy court can authorize the use of cash collateral. Now, it's a rare case that a bankruptcy court uses reserves to pay something other than their intended purpose. So if it's a tax reserve, it's a rare case that a bankruptcy court would say, you know what, instead of using that money to pay taxes, use it to pay some other expense. However, that's an open possibility. 
And it creates a pool of collateral that the borrower can use to claim that the lender is adequately protected in a way that the borrower doesn't have that opportunity if it's already been swept to the debt. To me, the real key when it comes to sweeping reserves is to make sure that you're entitled to do it under your loan documents. And so that goes, that circles back to point number one, right? I've read my documents. I've got a default. What are my remedies? And do I have the need under the documents to provide notice and opportunity to cure? Or can I accelerate and sweep the reserves? So you got to read the loan documents. But in my opinion, if you think there's a bankruptcy, you sweep those to the reserves. You sweep those reserves if you can and when you can. Now, there's a practical point here, though, is that there may be a, a desire to hold the reserves separate and so that you have funds available to, to a receiver or to other capital needs of the property. What do you think about that? No, I think that's very important. I mean, obviously, the first two steps here, one, know your loan documents and what you have authorization to do under your loan documents, and two, know what's going on at your property. So I would say if I had a property and I thought the risk of bankruptcy was probably kind of small, and there's a variety of reasons it can be small, but if I thought the possibility of bankruptcy was smaller, I definitely agree we should hold on to those reserves because you don't know what you may need them for. If you have a defaulted loan, your payments aren't coming in, your tax and insurance escrows aren't being funded, you may need some of those reserve funds to help keep tax and insurance at the property, which is critically important. If you have some tenant improvements that are going on for a lease where a tenant needs to move into the property, obviously that's how you create value at a property. So you want to have some funds to make sure that those tenant improvements can be completed. Obviously, we'd go back to the question before, and you would definitely want a receiver in place to help you work through those problems. But it is good or smart for an asset manager to have access to funds so that they continue the operations of the property. I would say most of the time, barring the threat of bankruptcy, I probably wait until the final resolution, until I know how the the end is going to play out. And then I would probably use the reserves at the very end. And hopefully in like, you know, somewhat of a minimal loss scenario, maybe you even have some funds that can go to default interest or something. But yeah. I think it's important to to wait and see what your most important needs are for those reserves first before applying them. That's a good, efficient use of cash. So look, we're at 23 minutes and I think the audience is going to get a bonus category here. I think we're going to get on to our sixth Six? Wow. Yeah. We've been talking fast, Keith. We've been we've been going pretty quickly. Yeah, that's true. This and, is good. And honestly, it bears repeating that every one of these topics that we've talked about so far could be its own one hour podcast, right? We're hundred percent. We're very lightly touching on few details of the surface. That's right. So last topic. How do we think through modification or extension of a loan? Post default, how do how do we think through those issues? And and let's start. Let's back into the legal points. Let's start with the business points. What what are the business points that you're looking at in making your decision? Am I going to modify the loan? Am I going to extend it? Am I going to insist on more capital coming in? How do you go through the analysis? I, it's impossible to reach a conclusion without a detailed set of facts. But what are the elements of your analysis? Yep, good question. It obviously depends on the property, the location, you know, the situation the asset's in. And then it probably also depends on the borrower situation and what they have the ability to do. I obviously, overall, you're looking for the highest net present value resolution. 
So you would hopefully be building out some type of projections based on the resolution you're projecting via an extension, a modification versus what you think the ultimate dual track resolution could be, which is most likely a foreclosure and sale scenario. So if we're able to project based on the business terms, the borrower and the lender have agreed to that this looks like a higher net present value resolution, typically those, those are supported over the foreclosure and sale scenario. I do think to the extent the borrower has some funds, that definitely plays a long way. Like the borrower being able to show, I'm going to commit these funds if you can give this. And this may be additional time. It may be a slightly different interest rate. It may be fewer reserves that are being collected. It could be a a variety of terms, but you're typically looking for borrower is going to give something, lender is going to give something, and obviously no one's really going to be happy about it, but there's some kind of middle ground each group can agree they can get comfortable with. And from the lender standpoint, it probably plays out higher from a resolution standpoint than the foreclosure. But if the borrower doesn't have it, it's, it's hard... I think it's hard to place value on sweat equity. So if the borrower is like, I can lease it up, I can do all these things, it's really hard to place value on just their work and effort. I agree there is value there, but I would say in this discussion, I think cash, a guarantee, a letter of credit, something that's actual collateral carries more weight. I totally agree with everything you've said there. For the non finance person in the room, the thing that makes the most sense to me is comparing the net present value of two different opportunities and seeing which is better, right? And to me, I always think of that in terms of let's take the, like you said, foreclose and sale and compare that to a longer term workout. If you do a net present value calculation, you're really getting to apples to apples. Instead of comparing the apples to the oranges, you create two baskets of apples and you figure out which one is better for the lender, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. From the legal point of view, I am always looking at what is the risk to my client of future litigation and what is the current state of the loan documents. So for example, if I'm in a circumstance where there is unencumbered collateral that's owned by the borrower and I can get that as a credit enhancement and that will work in the environment that I'm in, whether I'm representing a CMBS trust or a traditional lender, I'm thinking first, let's preserve my current collateral position. Let's make sure I've got good, clear documents and a payment stream that I can enforce in the court in the future. And then I'm looking for what else can I get? Can I get an additional guarantee? Can I get a credit enhancement that protects me outside of bankruptcy? For example, can I get a letter of credit? Letters of credit are not encumbered by the automatic stay. And so that would give me collateral that I could access even if the borrower were to file bankruptcy. And then I think the last thing I think about is I just look at the relationship holistically and think to myself, in protecting my client, do I think this borrower is particularly litigious? Are there elements of this negotiation that I want to take advantage of consent judgments? Do I want them to consent to relief from the automatic stay? Do I want a contractual right to the appointment of a receiver? Are there other waivers of deficiencies, you know, where they, they, they waive a defense to the lender's deficiency judgment in the event of a foreclosure? So I start with the premise of making sure I don't, I don't do any harm. I keep the, the same 
documents, column goodies that I have in my current loan documents, but then can I improve the lender's position? And I always think of it in terms of the lender is providing an accommodation. They're modifying the loan. They're extending the loan, whatever. That's always in the borrower's favor. And I should try to get something from a legal point of view that is more than we started. Agreed. And I would say letters of credit are interesting. We actually went through an exercise where we had to draw on one. And I hadn't done that in many years. And it's a very complicated, document-heavy sort of process you have to go through. But we did. We walked in, brought some original documents to the bank. And, you know, there was definitely a review period. I think it was like 24 or 48 hours. And we had a wire with the full amount about two or three days later. And we were able to, to collect on that letter of credit in connection with sort of a default and then forward-looking resolution. And for the bankruptcy nerds in the audience that are still listening, the, the case that everyone cites to that is a case called Twist Cap. Twist Cap. So that's the, that's the legal case that everybody refers to to show that letters of credit are not affected by the automatic stay in the event of a borrower's bankruptcy. Kind of a fun case name, Twist Cap. It makes yeah, me think of it a is soft a good drink. One. It is a good one. I, I don't actually have the case site, but uh, that's the case. Well, thank you for joining us, Amber. This has been great. And, yeah, uh, this was fun. We covered a lot. I was not certain we were going to get through all of our topics in the time, and, and we did. We breezed through. That's right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Distressed Situations is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's restructuring and insolvency practice, please email distressedsituations at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, ReedSmith.com, and on our social media accounts at ReedSmithLLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.